Howdy. Happy Election Day. Welcome to another episode of Cannon Calls. Sorry we're a few hours late, but it was worth it to get our guest today, Glenn Sunshine, who recently wrote Slaying Leviathan, a brand new book at Cannon Press. Today we talk about that, as well as a very successful Christian heritage book that you've probably heard us talk about on the podcast, Vindicii, which again, Glenn wrote an introduction to it, and it's been one of the most successful books of the year. And today you will hear about why that's the case. So without further ado, I'm very excited to introduce you to Glenn Sunshine. All right, now welcoming on our very special guest, author of the brand new Slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition, now available at Canon Press. Welcome on, Glenn Sunshine. Thank you so much for taking time, sir. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we'll get right to it. You have a brand new book, Slaying Leviathan. Like I said, that subtitle's packed with all kinds of uh, political force. My first question is, you start out with... I believe Matthew 10, when someone asks Jesus about paying taxes, Jesus's response there plays a big role for at least the start of your book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. In the Roman Empire, the emperor was in charge of pretty much everything. I mean, even religions uh, within the empire, if there was a conflict within them, the emperor's job was to mediate. Caesar was Lord. It's as simple as that. And when Jesus is asked about paying taxes and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, what he is doing there is he's saying, yeah, you know what? Caesar does have legitimate authority, but it's limited. It does not apply to everything. There are some things that belong only to God and Caesar can't touch those. Why do you think this in particular, so staying in that text, why why was that one? I believe the text says, you know, and everybody was sort of in awe. Is there anything that, what do you think is going on in that text that's, that's shocking? Well, this was a trap. The question was a trap. No matter what he said, if he had answered yes or no, he'd have been in trouble. If he just said, yes, you can pay taxes to Caesar, that would have alienated a lot of Jews. If he said no, that would have made him uh, treasonous and it would have gotten him arrested by the Romans. So this was intended to be a trap to catch Jesus. And Jesus's response sidesteps all of that. It doesn't exactly dodge the question, but it reframes it in such a way that it doesn't leave any room for attack on him. So this was not a dialogue in good faith. (laughs) No, it wasn't. They were trying to trap him. (laughs) Right. So now if someone were to ask you, so given that's sort of your cornerstone for the book, what's your basically, what's your elevator pitch for your book here? From the earliest days of Christianity, its job in a lot of ways in the political realm was to set limits on what government can and cannot do. Left to itself, government always wants to accumulate more power to itself. It always wants to extend its reach into every area of life. And Christianity on the political realm has spent most of its time saying this far and no farther. You are limited. You cannot do these things. And so the book is an exploration of how and why the church has done that over the millennia. I read it. It was super helpful. I don't know where. One of the things that I found so helpful and when I've 
giving it to folks. I've said, I, I don't know where else you're going to get a succinct sort of a narrative about what you just explained, sort of what is Christianity's posture towards government? It might be jumping ahead a little bit, but can you tell us about Leviathan? Yeah, Leviathan was a book by Thomas Hobbes in which Hobbes was making an argument for absolutism in government. That is to say, complete government with no limits at all. Basically, a totalitarian approach to government that would have been very recognizable to the Romans. Hobbes's arguments on it had a couple of extra wrinkles to them, but other than that, it was essentially an argument for totalitarianism. And the title slaying Leviathan is, I, I use Leviathan as a metaphor for this kind of unlimited government uh, wherever it exists throughout history. And it has been the job of Christian theologians in terms of it, their political theology of constantly saying, as I said, this far and no farther. You do have legitimate areas where you have responsibility, but there are a lot of things you can't touch because they come to us directly from God, not mediated by you. So, no, you can't do this. What you just explained in terms of like what the Leviathan is and, and Hobbes's idea, you know, it's hard for that to sound like a good idea, but we find more often than not, and obviously Hobbes thought so, and the Roman Emperor, Roman Empire thought so to some degree, that that was a great idea. What, what is attractive about the Leviathan? Why is this a, a seemingly a consistent temptation? Well, when you're in government, one of the things that you are constantly dealing with is power. And one thing about power is once you get some of it, you always want to accumulate more. You always want to think, well, I could do so much more if I could do this, if I had that. And the problem, of course, is really what Augustine talks about. It's original sin. You know, or, or as Lord Acton put it, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The problem is that the, the government is constantly wanting to take more authority on itself. People in government constantly want to have more power. And the effect of this is that it inevitably leads you into corruption. So today is election day. Uh, we're filming this uh, a day, well, the day of the podcast coming out. I think there are actually a ton of people in line voting for this kind of thing. Why? So I understand how it would be popular to, to those in power. That makes total sense. But why do you think that people are even going so far as to voting for it? I think there are a couple of things here. First of all, we've developed a cult of safety. Safety has really turned into an idol in our culture. And there are a lot of people who look on the government to provide safety for them. Somehow the government is going to stop the spread of a virus. Right. You know, how the government is going to provide the kind of safety net so that if they need food, they will be able to eat. They're going to have their housing taken care of. They're going to have their medical care taken care of. You know, all of the basic needs will be met. Heck, we're going to have universal basic income so that along with all of these other things, you have a certain amount of spending money that you can do what you want to. And it's all coming from the government, from Big Brother. Right. The problem, of course, with this is that there is no such thing as a free lunch. And if you give the government this kind of responsibility over your life, you are also giving the government authority over your life. Hmm. The government is going to insist that it has the right to control lots of aspects of your daily existence. And... Well, that is sort of the opposite of freedom. When you think about it, the only people in our culture right now 
that have food, housing, medical care, and everything taken care of by the government are either in the military or in prison. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's something I think that Pastor Wilson has said a few times in terms of uh, the freedoms that most people are talking about today are, are things that you could do in a in a six by six cell. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? In terms what, of what you mean by freedom. So if it's not those things, if it's not free pornography or drugs or something else, what, what do you mean by freedoms? Freedom is, well, what we have to do is, is break this down into a couple of different words. Um, because if you read back into the 18th century, you'll notice they don't talk about freedom. They talk about liberty. And there is a difference between freedom and liberty. Liberty is the idea that you have the freedom to make choices and to act within the boundaries set by divine and natural law, and perhaps the law of the state. But the law of the state, in turn, is supposed to conform to divine and natural law in the original concept of liberty. So what that means is you have a a wide scope of action where you are free to make your choices and do as you see fit, as long as you don't cross those certain boundaries that are put in place for the good of society and, frankly, of ourselves. So it is a, actually a positive definition of freedom. You, you have the freedom to pursue a good life. You have the pr- freedom to pursue happiness, which in the context of the Declaration of Independence does not mean what it sounds like it means. It means living a good, fruitful, fulfilled, virtuous life. This was uh, understood by the ancient Greeks to be the, the purpose of human life. So you are able to pursue then the purpose of your life if you have liberty, the purpose of of your existence. The alternative definition of freedom, though, is license. Hmm. If liberty is freedom for something, freedom to do something positive, freedom to act in ways that will move you toward, as I said, the very purpose for which you were created, license is the is freedom from. It's freedom from restraint. It's it's saying. You know, you can't tell me what to do. You don't have the right to stop me from doing whatever it is I want. License, which is the right root word for licentious, is um, not considered to be a virtue, and it is not considered something that we have an unalienable right to by any 18th century theorist, by anybody writing at the time of the Declaration of Independence. And yet, somehow, that is the idea of freedom that we've accepted today. And we think that's what freedom really is. Well, not according to the Founding Fathers. One thing that I very much appreciated about your book, and and I'll I'll sort of say this, and then you tell me if this resonated with you or anything that you had in mind when you were writing it, but um, it seems like the conservative world can get this right a lot of times where... And I think maybe this is what creeps things, people like the Big Eva out in terms of like, well, they all look like Trump supporters and they all look like they're just caring about their rights or their other things. But a lot of what you're talking about, what I loved about your book is that you root this right down to that Matthew 10 passage and and sort of how um, our fathers and mothers in the faith have dealt with this in the past. And that I, the things that are going on in today's election or in today's politics, we want to feel I think you would want to encourage others to feel as Christians, like in their in their Christian gut, they feel like Jesus said this far and no further. And I'm not, we're not saying that merely as conservatives who just like not to be told what to do. 
But primarily as Christians, we feel this way. Do, do you see that out and about that that's not necessarily a Christian gut feeling people have, but more of merely a conservative, you know, something that they at least just root in conservative values? Yeah, I, I think what, you know, when you look at um, your Tim Kellers or John Pipers of the world, people like that, they have way too small a view of political theology. They, they view it purely in terms of the individual. They're actually committing the American heresy of individualism. You know, so we don't look at the policies that are being advocated by people in government. We look at the individuals. You right. know, we don't, you know, the, the criticism of the conservative movement is that it's all about your individual rights and things like that. Actually, the argument I want to make is that a proper Christian political theology goes well beyond that in asking the fundamental question of what is government for? Why did God establish human government? And if, in fact, we go beyond the boundaries that God has set for government, if government begins to extend its authority in areas where it doesn't belong, the inevitable result is going to be brokenness and abuse and tyranny. So your book does a great job of cataloging, as I mentioned, uh, our sort of our fathers in the faith uh, through the ages fighting this same Leviathan. Why do you think um, one of the more haunting parts of your book uh, that I found was was you saying, and you can talk about this, but essentially John Locke was sort of a response to to Hobbes in terms of slaying that Leviathan. But we find that the Leviathan has sort of reared its head again. Um, and as you mentioned, very popular Christians who all of us, I'm sure, have appreciated and heard a sermon from any of the men you mentioned and, and very much enjoyed it and was edified by it. What's happened to the Christians today that, that we are not doing as well as maybe uh, our fathers in the past have? Well, I think that there, there's a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which is that we've ended up with a worldview that is so compartmentalized that, well, frankly, we bought into secularism. We bought into the idea, you know, secularism begins with the idea that church and state are different institutions. And I think we can embrace that. that. That's a good idea. But it goes from there to thinking that, therefore, religion doesn't have anything to say to politics. Hmm. And except for the occasional moral issue, most Christians have sort of lived in that kind of, of uh, realm in which they don't really understand you know, what they might they might talk about the idea that, you know, Christianity is a comprehensive worldview that affects all of life, but they don't really think about what that means. And they don't, you know, they don't want to impose, heaven knows you don't want to impose Christianity on other people. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that th that Christianity has nothing to say in the political realm. I'm not in favor of a state church. As a matter of fact, I think a state church is a notably bad idea because it's mixing church and state, which should properly be separate. Give to Caesar things that are Caesar and give to God the things that are God's. But that doesn't mean that God has nothing to say to Caesar. And unfortunately, a lot of our modern Christians in America have concluded that, well, no, you have to keep religion out of politics. And, you know, if you, uh, if you do, you know, you end up on the religious right or you end up trying to impose your, your morals or your views, and you can't do that, and so on. And frankly, they're wrong. Because if Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, then Jesus is Lord of Caesar. Hmm. So you wrote this book, 
if if and we we did our best we got it out by sort of this election week or election season what is your hope that when folks read your book what is the impact you're hoping to make on them i would like them well there are a couple of things here first of all i'm a historian and i would like them to begin to appreciate the fact that there were a lot of very smart people in church history <laughs> that wrestled with a lot of the issues that we're struggling with today and frankly we are fools if we don't look at what they said because these guys were really sharp they came up with very well thought out well constructed arguments they may be a bit difficult for us to follow because frankly we're intellectually flabby these days but the, it's worth working through these things there is there's much benefit that we can get from the wisdom of these great thinkers in our own tradition in the past. But secondly, you know that that's as I said as a professional historian that's one of the things that is always in the back of my mind when I write something like this. But the other part of it is that I would hope Christians would begin to think more and talk among themselves more about what the proper role of government is, what the proper boundaries are. And then along with that, something I didn't talk about directly in the book, what are the church's responsibilities? Because the fact is that the government has usurped a lot of the things that should properly be in the hands of the church, that should properly be in local hands. We're trying to do policies set by the federal government that amount to being one size fits none. We need to recover ideas of subsidiarity, uh, ideas of a local government, those sorts of things, um, local, local action, but with that as well, the role of the church in public life and the role of Christians in public life, because otherwise you get Leviathan. We've mentioned a few of the, of the thinkers that you cover in your book and sort of their books. Um, if folks don't know, you recently wrote an introduction to a book titled Vindicii. Can you tell us about that book? Yeah, the book was written in 1579 in the wake of a horrific event called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacres. Without going into the whole story, the King of France issued a safe conduct for Protestants to come to Paris, and then something went wrong, probably miscommunication, and a general massacre of Protestants ensued, killing probably upward of 20,000 people. The estimates vary greatly, but it, it seemed that there, there were at least thousands and possibly tens of thousands slaughtered across France. And in light of this, the, the Huguenots, the French Protestants, were, had been saying, you know, look, we want to be loyal to the king, but the king just doesn't understand what's going on. The king is misinformed about who we are and what we believe in those kinds of things. But now you have the king actually admitting responsibility for this. And the question then becomes, when does a legitimate king turn into an illegitimate tyrant? And when he starts massacring thousands of his own people is probably a pretty good mark of that. E on the eye chart, it sounds like. Yeah. So at that point, um, the question is, what do you do about it? And the Vindicii was one of several works that were written exploring this question of when is it legitimate to resist a king and, and what does that resistance actually look like? Now, that book is in our Christian Heritage series. Uh, obviously, it's available other places. It's, it's clearly been in public domain for some time, but we published it this year, had you write the introduction, 
and it's been one of the most successful books of the year. Why do you? Th- what is it about this moment that you think something like Vindicii of all books is such a hot seller? I think, frankly, people are worried. You know, we may not, in fact, know what the results of this election are for quite a number of days, maybe even weeks, maybe even longer, judging from some previous elections we've had. And I think people are nervous about what that means, about what is going to happen. I think people are concerned about the fact that we've seen riots taking place across the country with government doing nothing about it, maybe even encouraging it. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that are making people question, frankly, the legitimacy of government in the United States, and they're trying to figure out what to do about it. To be clear here, I am not an advocate of revolution or violent counter responses or anything of the sort. But what we do need to do is think about what it means when government is failing to do its duty to protect citizens and threatening their liberties. In the months coming up to your book, as we talked about it in the office, as shorthand, a lot of times it was talked uh, about as a Protestant political resistance theory or, or something to that effect. Is that fair to say of your book? Yeah, actually, the technical term is Protestant resistance theory. That is actually a one of the themes in the book. Um, it turns out that resistance theory is a lot of things that pre- precede it. So a fair amount of the book deals with those, but the second half of the book is really dealing with, yes, Protestant resistance theory. So we're seeing, as you mentioned, and and something I'm sure a lot of people are worried about, a lot of civil disobedience sort of in a way that you mentioned you're not advocating for. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the history of that resistance and what it looks like in, in, in motion? Well, there, the history on this is fairly clear, at least as, a, as it applies to the United States. Um, it goes back, in the case of the of Protestant resistance theory, it goes back well beyond before that, uh, all the way into about the year 1530, when the Protestant princes in Germany were being threatened with uh, warfare to force them to return to Catholicism from the Holy Roman Emperor. And they developed a defense of a league called the Schmalkaldic League, and Luther eventually, after some discussion, uh, approved of it, creating the argument that uh, resistance to higher governmental authorities is legitimate if it's led by lower governmental authorities. In other words, your local sheriff has the authority to resist and lead resistance against mandates from the governor that dictate things that the sheriff believes are illegal or unconstitutional. So that would be an example of resistance by a lesser magistrate, a lesser figure in the government. Um, This gets extended in Britain to uh, the right of resistance uh, lands on the people because the implicit covenant between the king and the government, the covenant that exists that establishes the government is between the king and the people. So if the king breaks his side of it, the people have a right to resist him. Then that is going to feed into Locke and uh, the thinking of the uh, American colonists who were resisting illegal taxation from Britain. As we sort of wrap up here, is there someone in, in this sort of historical narrative that you give us that if you could go back and sort of, uh, you know, nothing violent, but just stop that pen from hitting the paper, maybe. Who, who's sort of the big enemy of this narrative? It's, I assume it's you get one before Hobbes. Yeah, actually, though, I'm going to pick one after Hobbes. Okay. 
Okay. And this, this, this goes to the epilogue of the book. The whole tradition of Christian political theology that I discuss in this book really culminates in the American Revolution. After that, everything changes dramatically because of the French Revolution. And the French Revolution sets in motion everything that happens in political theory since. Everything is either a development of the French Revolution or a reaction to it. So if I wanted to stop someone from writing, it would be Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Ah, nice. really like to get rid of the social contract. Okay. Wow. Because that that has objectively done more harm than any other book prior to the 20th century that I can think of. Fascinating. At least... At least in the context of um, of European history or Western history, right? I I was going to one of my questions I have written down was it can we just say it was all Rousseau's fault? And it seems like you got there before I did. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's all Rousseau's fault. There were a lot of other people who were involved, but Rousseau came up with a particularly virulent uh, idea that ended up costing literally hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen their lives. Right. Okay. Glenn, do you have any predictions for today? As a historian, I'm better at things that have happened in the past than <laughs> things that are going to happen. Right. But having said that, I suspect from a lot of things that I've read that Trump is going to do much better than the polls are suggesting. And I'm cautiously optimistic that he will win. I'm not sure what's going to happen with the House. Probably stay in Democratic hands. I think the Senate, hoping it will stay in Republican hands. I think with, uh, if I'm correct about Trump, there's a very good chance that the Senate stays Republican as well. Uh, you, you mentioned it. Um, I, I put out on Twitter today an over-under on knowing the election results with Thursday. Do you have an over-under on Thursday with knowing the election results? I think we will know the election results by Thursday. Okay. So the under. All right. Glenn's on yeah. the under. And yeah, we may, we may not, but I, I have a feeling if I'm right about how I'm reading the tea leaves, uh, Trump is going to win with a much more commanding vote than anybody really expects. And if that's the case, we'll know by Thursday. Awesome. Awesome. We can catch you on the podcast. Is that weekly? Yeah, the Theology Podcast comes out every week. Awesome. So we can find you there with C.R. Wiley and Dr. Tom Price. And as we mentioned, you're part of the Christian Heritage Series at Canon Press with Vindicii. And of course, brand new Slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. I mean, what better week do we need to motivate folks to pick up this book? I'm not sure. So everyone go get that. Glenn, thank you so much for your time today. And Thank you so much for coming out to Moscow. We do have a great Man Rampant episode with you that'll come out in season three. So thank you for all the above. Well, thanks. It's been my pleasure. Cheers. Bye-bye.